It's WNRI's Upfront. The opinions expressed represent those only of the panel and callers and do not reflect the views of WNRI and its owners. Telephone lines are now open at 7690600. And now, let's join the Upfront panel. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Upfront program for this um, Tuesday morning. I'm Roger Bouchard here every day doing a talk show. We go in a whole bunch of different directions. Today is uh, no exception to the rule. Chris Boulay is uh, joining us. Tomorrow, we uh, continue our series of programs. It's selection time, and uh, some of the candidates are uh, making themselves available. And Woonsocket has a field of 14 candidates, and we will elect seven of them, and, and they will become our next uh, Woonsocket City Council. And one of them is a former councilman who is running again. He uh, was defeated in an election and and uh, didn't let that uh, deter him. And so he has put his uh, name in again, and he'll be on the ballot in November. And uh, that will be Garrett Menseri. He'll be joining us tomorrow. But all of the uh, council candidates will be joining us right up until November. We'll also have uh, a couple of the uh, candidates uh, for state representative joining us um, as part of our Wednesday program. So every Wednesday, we will have a uh, candidate join us, and uh, we'll do a, a nice interview with uh, them. Today, we're going to do a nice interview also. And uh, Chris Boulay, first of all, uh, always nice to see you, and welcome to Tuesday. Good morning, Roger. Good morning, listeners. It's terrific to be here. I told Mr. Poitras yesterday that I agreed to do this because you included the one mile to come to the station. So he gave me, was it, 57 cents? All right. That sounds like <laughs> a good deal to me. Um, we are going to be doing uh, an interview. I, I see a gentleman uh, here in the studio, and uh, he looks like he's ready to go and uh, give us some information. Yes, I'm very excited. I think the topic, one of the topics we're going to talk about is very timely as the United States is in a different mode in terms of law enforcement and people all have video cameras and this, I cannot think of it a better gentleman to talk about this. And he wears a few hats. It's going to take me a second to introduce him. It's attorney John Jack Ryan, who is co-director of the Legal and Liability Risk Management Institute works very closely with the police departments. He's a captain retired from the province police department. Uh, he's an attorney, and he's also the former partner of uh, Chief Oates, our chief here. So welcome. Good morning, and thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about it because Roger and I will sit here. We talk about politics. We talk about the economy. And this will rear its ugly head every once in a while. And we're not really prepared to look at this the way you are and the experience that you've had in cases of alleged police force. So can you talk a little bit about your background and brings it up? I mean, the thing that stands out is looking, doing over 900 cases as an expert witness, but I think it bears uh, telling your, your background leading up to your expertise. Yeah, so I, so I was a police officer for 20 years in Providence, uh, Rhode Island, obviously. And uh, had a great time there. My whole family are police officers. Uh, brother, father, uh, who's passed away, and, and uh, three brother-in-laws, and so a whole family of police officers, so it is certainly a tradition in, in our family. Uh, but for the last almost 20 years now, I've been traveling the country as a trainer, so I, I do probably 40 weeks a year on the road uh, doing training for law enforcement around the country on, on what we call high-risk topics, including use of force and deadly force. Uh, but in addition to that, I get involved in a lot of the cases, and, and I've been very fortunate uh, to have become involved in some of the bigger cases around the country um, as an expert, sometimes as a consulting expert. I've been involved in a couple of cases that have gone to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, both were deadly force cases, and uh, so it, it's been a great uh, experience. It's always a learning experience. And um, certainly, you know, one of the things I say to other officers when I train them is I wish every officer had the opportunity that I have uh, to travel around the country, speak to officers on a daily basis because I'm constantly learning uh, from them because of the different experiences that they have uh, that they bring to the table and then share with me um, a, that gives me a broader experience that I would never get locally. We were sitting in the groom, uh, green room for a few minutes, and if you're an NFL football player, they have this thing, they'll say, the tape don't lie. So if you're making the plays or not making the plays, tape don't lie. That's their uh, go-to phrase. 
but in talking quickly, and we'll get to some of these cases, the, the tape can lie, and um, you make a point of seeing all of it. And um, we won't, we'll probably get into the, the way the media will like to flame things up, but could you kind of address that, and uh, then we'll go broader into the cases. While people like myself will be watching CNN, and we'll see something, but we don't see everything. Yeah, so, so um, you know, I'll just give you a couple of quick examples. So um, I was involved in a case out of West Memphis, Arkansas, that ended up before the U.S. Supreme Court where officers were charged criminally in a shooting uh, after they shot into a vehicle. Uh, they were charged in Tennessee. The, the chase had gone over into Memphis, Tennessee. And initially, uh, our initial officer said the car was coming at him at the time he fired a shot. But I'm going to tell you that when you watch the video from his dash cam, uh, that did not appear to be the case. And I think the prosecutor watched that video, and, and that was the basis of bringing charges. What everybody missed was there was a second car that pulled in from the side. And on that, on that car uh, dash cam, you could clearly see the wheels moving back and forth on the vehicle, um, if, which clearly showed that the vehicle was going at the officer at the time he fired the shots. So that's an example. There's a, there's a great um, two videos out of Shreveport, Louisiana, same thing, where it appears that uh, the gentleman is just walking away from the officers and they just shoot. Um, so, but when you look at the second video, uh, luckily there was a second uh, law enforcement vehicle there. You look at the second video and it's very clear uh, that, in fact, um, the guy did spin around with what appeared to be a gun in his hand. And the court threw out the case, uh, even the civil case against the officers based on the second video. So we got to remember that videos are two-dimensional fixed perspective. Um, and then sometimes uh, the media frames it up in a way. And, and again, this is a little bit of a... Um, you know, sounding board on the media. But, you know, I watched yesterday a uh, video from this new case out of Kenosha. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know. Maybe the maybe the video I saw yesterday was was faulty or was was somebody did something with it. But you can clearly hear the person who's doing the video saying in the background, oh my God, he's got a knife. We've got to witness this. He's got a knife. Well, today I'm, I, you know, I happen to get up and watch the only news and none of that. The, today it's about the officer shooting an unarmed man in the back. Um so again, you know, you've, sometimes it's framed up in a way that, that maybe causes some issues that may not exist. You've uh, testified as an expert witness in over 900 cases. It just seems to me as a layperson that virtually all of the cases I've seen are, are people resisting arrest. People doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Um, I have, you know, they're, they're adults now, but... When uh, my kids started to drive, if you get pulled over by the police, you roll down the window, you put your hands on the steering wheel, and you create a non-threatening situation, and it's probably going to work out. As opposed to people getting out of the car, you know, brandishing weapons, being on drugs, and again, that's just a layperson, but can you recall how many of those cases don't involve somebody not doing what they're supposed to do and resisting arrest? You know, they are few and far between. And again, as an expert witness, I can tell you that I do some cases, even against law enforcement, when they, when they do make mistakes. Uh, because mistakes are made. Mistakes of professional judgment are made. You know, one of the things that, that really nobody talks about is, you know, the, the um, medical industry. Third leading cause of death in this country is, is caused by mistakes of professional judgment in the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. It's the third leading cause of death. More than 250,000 people per year. Um, Law enforcement, even if you look at numbers, uh, you know, developed by the Washington Post, it's it's about a thousand per year uh, that are that are killed by law enforcement, and and obviously a lot of those are appropriate uh, uses of force. Mm-hmm. In fact, the vast majority are. So, law enforcement, when you think about the fact that law enforcement makes twenty nine thousand arrests per day, over ten million per year, and then a thousand people are killed. Um, in a deadly force situation, then you got to pull out all the ones that are good, um, that, you know, deadly force was justified, and then how many mistakes are actually being made. And to your point, you know, there are a lot of cases that we would never hear the names of, of some of these individuals if they had submitted, uh, whether they thought the officers were right or wrong, if they had just submitted to the lawful authority of law enforcement. Um, the one that started it, but you've been doing this way before this happened, and the one that 
you know, I'm not going to save this for the end because it's a complicated issue and it's gotten the most profile, which is George Floyd in Minneapolis. I, I think it was Memorial Day where he got pulled over uh, potentially for uh, passing a counterfeit $20 bill and then things escalated from there. I know you're very familiar with it. Can you talk to the listening audience through this and your expertise, what you saw? I'm sure you've seen video that we haven't seen. And um, if, if I may, um, are you involved in that case at all? Well, I, I was initially. Um, the attorney that thought he was going to be representing the Floyd family called me. Um, he did not end up with the case. The attorney that has the case called me, uh, but I decided not to take it with him. Um, it is a complicated case. Um, the officer's tactics were not consistent with law enforcement practices, uh, kneeling on him for a long period of time. I, I, I don't know of any police officer, any trainer that I've talked to that said, yeah, that was, that was a good use of force. Um, you know, the training is all when they're restrained, get off them immediately, get mm -hmm. them into a position that facilitates breathing. But by the same token, um, you know, there's, there's a lot out there that are, are going to be an issue. Uh, I'm very familiar with Minneapolis. I'm familiar with their policies. And they have... Can, may, can I interrupt? Sure. Are, are they accredited? No, I don't believe they have any accreditation. Okay. Uh, and they've had some problems, quite frankly. Um, they've had a lot of problems over the years, um, including a case, the David Smith case, which has uh, been talked about in the, in the mass media. The David Smith case was very similar to George Floyd, where they stayed on top of an individual uh, for a total of seven and a half minutes, I think. But the, the, uh, the death was, was caused probably a minute and a half in uh, by compression asphyxia. They settled that case. Uh, it was one of the second largest settlements in, in Minneapolis's history, almost, I think, $4 million uh, back in, in 2010, or that happened in 2010. I think they settled it in 2012. But um, they have this, this restraint policy that talks about an unconscious and a conscious neck restraint, and it's unique. I've never seen this anywhere else. I've talked about this nationally. Uh, I've never seen it anywhere else where it allows for an officer to kneel on one side of the neck. Now, you know, one of the things for in law enforcement, a lot of law enforcement is trained on something called a carotid restraint or the lateral vascular neck restraint, which means you put pressure on the carotid arteries on both sides of the neck. Okay. Uh, kind of like bookends, right? And uh, when you do that, it cuts off blood flow. And when you do that for, and I think, uh, you know, most of the training says four to seven seconds, the person will go unconscious if you have enough pressure. Um, they'll recover in 15 to 20. Minneapolis actually has a policy that allows officers to use the knee, which I've never seen uh, this, uh, this leg restraint around the neck before, uh, anywhere in the country, and I do this all over the country. Um, and um, they allow it to even be on one side of the neck. I think what you're going to find in this case is you're going to find two major issues in the criminal case of, of Derek Chauvin. I think you're going to find an issue of whether or not the knee on the neck actually was causative of the death uh, because the prosecutor will have to prove causation, uh, that the knee to the neck caused the death. But you're also going to see, I think, what we call the empty chair defendant. You're going to see the agency brought into the case because, uh, you know, if, if I were a defense attorney and I were defending Derek Chauvin, I would blow up that policy to about a billboard sign mm -hmm. and say that his actions were consistent with the policy because he's kneeling on the neck as directed by their conscious and unconscious neck restraint policy. And, and for clarification, Minneapolis is the only police department in the country that... that that uh, allows this? I've never seen it before. So and, prob and, probably not. <laughs> you know, I've never seen it before. And, and you know, I, I write model policies in 23 different states. Um, I get involved in training use of force in all 50 states. I've, I've just never seen this kind of policy before. And, Jack, uh, something to clarify for me. When the story first broke, I kept hearing St. Paul. So um, I know that they're, they're twin cities. Was this a Minneapolis issue or was it a St. Paul issue? No, this is a Minneapolis issue. And, and you know, St. Paul is, is generally uh, thought of as a, as a really good police department. Not that they don't make mistakes here and there, as, as uh, you know, a lot of departments do around the country. But uh, their, their reputation is a lot better than Minneapolis's reputation. Mm -hmm. okay. Now, um, Mr. Floyd, 
said he had um, claustrophobia, did not want to get into the, to the back of the police car. You know, you're not just an attorney, not just an expert witness. You've been on the street for 20 years. You've dealt with that directly, so you're uh, more than qualified to talk about it. Is there anything that they should have done to de-escalate de the situation? So Mr. Floyd is cuffed behind the back. He, he's fighting getting into the police car. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who are claustrophobic. How do you diffuse that, and should you have diffused that, and, uh, you know, Mr. Chauvin and the rest of them? You know, I think, uh, you know, and, and this is not available to every law enforcement agency, but a big agency like Minneapolis, I'm sure, uh, I, I know for a fact, has other bigger transport vehicles that could have been used. So that's, I mean, that's one possibility, that they could have called for a wagon uh, where it wouldn't have been as tight as the backseat of a police car. He's a really, really big guy. I think I heard he's uh, six seven. Uh, so he's a really big guy in the backseat of that police car is very tight. Uh, but the fact of the matter is law enforcement, if they're making an arrest, has to get him into the back of the police car. I think that opens up another issue uh, that's probably not been looked at in great detail is, is whether or not there was actually any reported crime that day. I mean, it, my understanding is the store owner was reporting he wanted to get him out of there. Mm -hmm. he, wasn't, he wasn't trying to get him arrested. He was trying to get him out of there because he said he had passed a $20 bill, a phony $20 bill at a previous point in time. Um, it hasn't really come out yet, and I don't know the answer to this, how much investigation they did with respect to that before they decided to take him into custody. And I think that's probably going to be a, a significant issue as well, whether or not you know they had reached the point where he should have been placed into a police car at all. And Officer Chauvin uh, allegedly knew Mr. Floyd. I guess they worked at the same place, and I think he was well known to the Minneapolis Police Department. He had spent, you know, been, been uh, convicted ten times. Still, should have your Fourth Amendment rights protected, but there seems to be some kind of past history there. There's certainly, um, you know, a, a past history. Um, we've heard even in the, the mass media about uh, crimes that he committed. Um, with respect to robberies, and I think he was in prison nine times, I think is my understanding, maybe ten. Mm -hmm. um, threatening, so, threatening a woman with holding a gun to her stomach and she was pregnant? Correct. And and so, you know, you, you we are hearing all of that. Um, there's, there's no question that he's got a history. Um, but again, you, you know, we've got to do constitutional policing uh, with everybody. Um, so, so again, the, the policing still has to be constitutional, and, and force still has to be constitutional. I've got this wonderful thing in my hand called an iPhone 11 from Apple, and it allows me to know that people are listening. So I just received a question for you uh, from a listener, and this has come up a few times. And it says, what about the fact that George was talking while well, knee on neck? I thought you couldn't talk if you were choking. Yeah, I, you know, I, I mean, we see a lot of uh, uh, disagreement among the medical experts, and I'm certainly not a medical expert, but there is there are some medical experts. I've been in court when they come in and they say that's absolutely false, uh, that persons that are losing uh, the proper degree of oxygen. So remember, some of it's, it's not that they're choking um, because they might not be able to talk if they're choking, but if they're losing oxygen saturation, uh, some medical experts are going to say they can still talk, even though they're in the process of losing enough oxygen uh, because of uh, asphyxiation, basically. How much emphasis, if you were on the defense side, would you put and can be placed on the fact that uh, Mr. Floyd may have been on narcotics? Does, does, does that change anything? Well, I think, it's, I think that's going to go to causation, right? Mm -hmm. I, think, I think when we see a criminal trial in this case... As I said at the beginning, I think you're going to see two major issues. Uh, one of the major issues is going to be causation. Did, did the knee on the neck cause death or did the degree of, of narcotics in his system uh, cause death? You know, I, I, I remember being at a presentation by this Dr. Oliver who was out of Wake Forest in, in uh, North Carolina. And Dr. Um, Oliver said, look... Um, he was from Minnesota initially, and he said, look, some people, he said, the first time we have a wet, heavy snow uh, in the winter, we get the emergency room loaded with people with heart attacks because they went outside and they, they did the wet, heavy snow. He said, sometimes there's people out there in similar physical condition that gets into a struggle with law enforcement, and the process of subdual is kind of like sho shoveling the wet, heavy snow. Mm -hmm. Any degree of physical exertion would push this person over the edge. 
I think you'll probably see that kind of argument in the George Floyd case. Now, we're going to be wrapping up in a second for commercial, but I want to put an open-ended question. Is there anything that you think is pertinent about the case that maybe I didn't ask before we close this part of the show? I don't. I think we can talk about some things that I think uh, the demonstrations and the protests and the riots that followed. I think there's probably some things that, that uh, could be talked about. There's some interesting dynamics in that, too, that I don't think anybody's thinking about. We'll pick that up in a minute. All right. The Roast House is open seven days a week and our hours are 11.30 a.m. to 9 p.m. And we're featuring outside dining and inside dining and, of course, takeout. To make a reservation to dine or to place an order at the Roast House, call 508-883-7700 and check our menu on the Internet for theroasthouse.com. Thank you for your support during this period of transition. The Roast House, Palm Street, Blackstone. We welcome back old and new customers for inside and outside dining. You know, the Roast House has some great steaks and roasts. I mean, you wouldn't be called the Roast House if we didn't have that. And uh, checking uh, the menu, uh, there's a nice uh, sirloin steak uh, that's being offered every day. Ten ounces of um, of hand-cut fresh steaks, never frozen and dusted with our chef's seasoning and char-grilled to your taste. It's just one of the great steaks you'll find at the Roast House in Blackstone, Massachusetts, also in Pawtucket. And we want to remind you that we have outside dining, too, and inside dining. So if you'd like to uh, make a reservation, you're welcome to do that. Or you can just show up. If we have the accommodations, we'll seat you. The Roast House, where friends and family meet. Scott McGee of REMAX Properties brings his years of real estate experience to you, whether buying or selling. Check out this property currently on the market from the McGee team. All right, and uh, right now we're featuring a nice condo at Brookhaven Manor, yeah. Uh, This is 304 Brookhaven Lane here in Woonsocket, and uh, this beautiful, beautiful property built in 1987 is on the market right now for $239.9. It has two full bedrooms and two full bathrooms, and I also see a nice uh, garage unit there, too, to keep your car out of the elements uh, during the winter time, you can move right into this super spacious home in the uh, East Socket uh, neighborhood. Very nice complex in a uh, very what we'll call quiet area of Socket, yet convenient to all the highways and shopping. And this unit is immaculate. If you'd like to see it, Scott McGee would be more than happy to show it to you. And uh, the um, number to call him at is uh, 639-2906. All right, that's Scott McGee, your Remax Properties guy. Chance Liquors for Keyway, 481 Clinton Street, Woonsocket. Still on sale, Tisdale Wines from California. In six varieties, including a Pinot Grigio, Merlot, Cabernet, White Zinfandel, Chardonnay, and a Moscato. And yes, it's still two bottles for $10. Share in life's endless possibilities with Tisdale Vineyards of California. Quality wine. And we continue the best price in town on Bud and Bud Light, 30 Pack 2550 plus tax. Champs Liquors for Keyway, Clinton Street, Woonsocket. Champs Liquors now offers in store shopping. Come on in and browse around. You're welcomed. Social distancing observed at Champs Liquors. And remember, if you have a question, call us at 765 1800 and we'll cheerfully answer any question you have about beer, wine, and liquors. Champs Liquors or Keyway, Woonsocket. For a limited time, your favorite classic bacon cheeseburger with fries is just $8.99 at Applebee's. Dine-in, delivery, or to-go, indulge your taste buds with Applebee's classic all-beef patty topped with cheese and applewood smoked bacon. It doesn't get any tastier than this. Applebee's, your neighborhood bar and grill on Diamond Hill Road, Woonsocket. Listening to WNRI's Upfront, a radio internet talk show. Now, let's get back to the panel. We are back to the panel. It's our Tuesday program, the Upfront program. We have a guest in the studio, and uh, we're learning a lot of interesting things. Chris Boulay arranged it. Back to Chris. Good morning, sir. Good morning. It's great to have great guests, and it's great to have timely guests, and we have both. If you're just tuning in, we're speaking to attorney John Jack Ryan, who is co-director of the Legal and Liability Risk Management Institute, which provides services related to risk management for law enforcement agencies nationwide. And we're going to expand upon this a little bit. We just spent a good amount of time analyzing the George Floyd case and what happened, what may happen. And then you're 
have more information regarding the aftermath of what's happening in terms of the way the nation's approaching it. And there's things that are behind the scenes that people are probably not aware of. Yeah, so I, I think one of the things uh, is when you start to um, do a deep dive into the organization of some of these movements, and, and again, this is without being critical of the movements themselves, but it has to be understood that you do have a group of people um, that fly around uh, anytime there's one of these deaths. Um, it's been happening uh, since Trayvon Martin. Um, if you start reading books, uh, uh, particularly there's one uh, recent uh, book that came out that's uh, They Can't Kill Us All. It's written by a Washington Post reporter, but he kind of chronicles uh, actually flying around with these organizers who fly from city to city uh, when there is one of these deaths. So that's one thing. The other thing I think is, is something that nobody's really talking about, you know, and when I was a, a young officer in Providence and we had the uh, pro-choice and pro-life protests at, at Planned Parenthood, you know, law enforcement would stand in the middle um, and allow both groups to uh, exercise their First Amendment rights. And uh, law enforcement would kind of protect both groups uh, and uphold the constitutional rights of both. The difference that we have here is, remember that law enforcement is the target of a great deal of this protest. And so it's, it's really, really a difficult uh, paradigm, if you will, I guess is the right word, that law enforcement now has to stand in the middle when they're actually the target of the protest. It's kind of like asking... Uh, Bill Belichick to referee the Super Bowl when the Patriots are playing, you know, and so that's that's a, you, you're actually bringing the target of the protest to the protest to try to referee the protest, and that's a dynamic that I, I don't know how to change that. Um, it may be why the National Guard has had such good luck in some places and and have really helped quell this thing. Uh, even though there's been some criticism about bringing them in, I, th I think that there's probably something to that. Because they're not the target of the protest. So, so they can more easily referee and stand in the middle. You know, so that's a, that's a, a dynamic that, that really nobody's talking about. I'm very conservative. Roger's very conservative. And we've been doing this for a long, long time. And we try to keep an open mind to the liberal side. We don't have all the answers. We just have our viewpoints. And we seek out other viewpoints. Well, when it comes to the asinine thought of defunding the police... Um, we've had that situation here in a very small way in Woonsocket. The city council member, Alex Kiddis, has gone on record on this station within the last week saying he wants to defund the police. And there was a six-to-one vote um, for uh, spent $153,000 for three police cars. And um, the thought process, I think, was if you connect the dots, it's defund the police. So y your thoughts on that, and then I'll expand that with... You can talk to Chief Oates, you can talk to you, you can talk to anyone who's been in law enforcement for a long time. You used to have a couple hundred applicants for jobs in the police department, and who wants to do it now? So defending, defunding the police and, and then making sure that this is still a profession that, that people want to do. Well, I, I think it goes even deeper than that. Um, you know, here, herein lies the problem. You know, we want the most professional law enforcement we can possibly have. And so when you start cutting that pool of applicants because the, the pay, obviously, if you defund, the pay would have to go down. Mm -hmm. um, the money for training would have to go down. And so now when you cut the pay, then less people want to uh, put themselves in that pool of applicants. So you, you end up with a pool of applicants that may not be as good. And so you have to accept some of them to fill the positions. You know, I, I can remember back even after Ferguson, I, I was out in South Dakota speaking at the chiefs and sheriffs meeting. And I had a chief tell me that uh, when he gets an applicant that shows up at the station, he just comes in and makes sure they're breathing. Uh, <laughs> and he'll put them on the mm -hmm. job because, because he's got to fill those spots. So, you know, the defunding issue goes greater than that. You know, here's the other, here's the other problem. Um, and... You know, this is something else that nobody's talking about. And, and again, you know, this is not a, an insult to Black Lives Matter, but I was watching the news the other day, and um, the story was on about the arrest made uh, for the subject who burned the police car in Providence uh, during the riot. And then that was followed up by a comment of, of somebody from Black Lives Matter who said, hey, this is just a property crime. Where's the justice for Breonna Taylor? Now, Breonna Taylor was the shooting in Louisville, Kentucky, right? Nothing to do with Providence, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. 
nothing to do with Woonsocket, Rhode Island. Um, when we start to look at deaths in law enforcement, um, Rhode Island is 50 out of 50. In fact, the Northeast, and that includes New York and New Jersey, when you start to look at the statistical analysis, the Northeast accounts for 1% of all law enforcement-related deaths in the United States. 1%, counting New York and New Jersey. Can I, make sure? I think I understood that, but Rhode Island has the lowest per deaths per capita in, in police enforcement. Absolutely. Okay. And, and I mean, all you've got to do is look around. How often do you hear that the law enforcement is, is shooting or killing somebody? It just, it's, it's, a, it's the oddity. Um, so, so to then paint law enforcement in Rhode Island with that broad brush is really unfair, uh, particularly when law enforcement in Rhode Island does actually so well. Um, so I, I think that's something that, that you know, another discussion we got to open, open the window to. Um, we can't just sit back and say, okay, something happened in Minnesota, so now let's defund law enforcement agencies in Rhode Island. Uh, that doesn't make any sense, right? Now, the city of Woonsocket is accredited. And the city of Minneapolis is, and would you give some of that um, credit regarding fifty out of fifty to accreditation and training? Of of course, I think you know I think law enforcement in Rhode Island, uh, particularly at the uh, recruit level, is some of the best training in the country. Um, there's no question about it. It's it's uh, you know there's there's states in this country where they do you know. 10, 11 weeks of training, and then they're putting people on the road, and, and Rhode Island is more than double that. So so when you start looking at that issue, I think accreditation uh, keeps agencies accountable. Uh, to maintain that accreditation, there's always somebody independently coming in and taking a look at policies, taking a look, making sure the training is being done, making sure there's compliance with a number of different directives. Um, you know, I, I think, and, and again, you know, um, I've known Tommy Oates for a long time here in Woonsocket, and, and Tommy's one of the best police officers uh, that I ever knew. And um, he's a smart guy, uh, and he's, he's uh, squared away. Um, so I wouldn't expect anything but him uh, pushing professionalism, even if they weren't accredited. But I think the fact that they are accredited just takes that one step further. So, you know, and, and so as I look around... Uh, Rhode Island, you know, I, I live in Smithfield, and, and Smithfield is also accredited, and uh, just great departments, you know. Um, obviously, I have a tradition in Providence, and I think Providence is a great department. One, one issue that, that comes up uh, against, or, you know, a black eye, literally against uh, Rhode Island uh, law enforcement, and th this comes to mind a lot because we have Peter Nerona on, the Attorney General, former U.S. Attorney, and I think this is one of his first cases he looked at, and he, he brings it up probably once a year on this show talking about, when we talk about uh, this, these issues, and that's the kicking of the woman who was handcuffed at Twin River by a Lincoln police officer, and I know you're very familiar with that, and I tell you, I got a comment. I've never learned so much so quickly in the green room, and I've been doing this for a long time. But talk about that case and how it was probably mishandled in terms of the charges and what you think about the entire case. Yeah, so I, I think clearly the officer was wrong, right? Uh, officer acting out of emotion and and specifically with a with a handcuffed prisoner uh, is is a you know clearly wrong, and it's it's criminal. There's no question about it, but. Uh, Police officers are human as well, and uh, and sometimes you know people do act out of a, a temper or out of a, what have you, particularly when when they they're kicked by the prisoner who's handcuffed as well. Um, that's not to say he couldn't protect himself by going and holding her down or, or something else, but but to uh, throw the kick that he did was was improper. But and and by the way, um, I think the world of Peter Narona. I think he's, he's uh, I've known him for a long time, and I think he's absolutely uh, phenomenal for this state. But, uh, you know, I, I do think that, uh, you know, back when that occurred, in my mind, um, watching it, it was a simple assault. And, again, I don't know enough about her medicals, but I do know that that felony charge requires um, serious injury or uh, some injury at least. And I, I just don't think that the injury... Uh, supported the charge, uh, at least in my mind. But again, that's that's knowing what I know about the case. I wasn't involved in the case. Knowing what I know from the outside, um, I do think that it, it certainly rose to the level of criminality, but I just didn't think it rose to the level of the felony that was charged. Now, again, um, I'll qualify this again. I'm, I'm a layperson. The one that really bothered me, or one that bothered me, was the recent one in Atlanta. 
um, um, I think it was Rashad was his name, and um, he resisted arrest. He grabbed the taser of the police officer, was firing the taser back at the police officer, and the police officer shot him. This is just me as a layperson, no expertise at all. But my thought was the officer was justified. What happens if he's incapacitated with the taser? Now the, now the uh, suspect's got a gun and is going to kill him. That's just from me, and you may have a different viewpoint. Yeah, so, so I think there's, a, there's some things that you have to, that we don't know yet, right? Um, you know, one of the questions I had initially, um, I think it's been cleared up now, was whose taser was it? Uh, was it the shooter's taser? Because um, uh, the shooter would know whether he had deployed um, the cartridge or not. Was it an X2 taser, which has two shots, or was it an X26 that only has one shot and has to be reloaded? Um, I think now we know that the taser was the non-shooter's uh, taser that could grab. But I think more importantly, that's a case where a lot of the training on taser says, look, if the subject does get the taser, then it becomes a deadly force encounter because of the ability of the person to immobilize the officer with the taser and potentially take their gun. Now, the fact of the matter here is there's at least two officers there. Where is the other officer in proximity to the shooter? Uh, and does the shooter know that? So that's, that's, that's another issue uh, because potentially he has the protection of the other officer, right? But I think the more important thing is remember that law enforcement gets to use deadly force in two distinct situations. The first is when they or somebody else is in danger of serious bodily harm or death. And I think when the person has a taser and can potentially shoot it, um, maybe hit the officer in the chest. Remember that there is some limited cases uh, where a chest shot uh, will kill, uh, will capture the heart and will kill the uh, person. Now, you might say, well, yeah, but the officer probably has a bulletproof vest on, so that's not going to happen. But what if the officer gets hit in the eye? Um, That would certainly cause serious bodily harm. Um, Maybe not death, but it could blind an officer. So the officer would be justified and licensed to use deadly force in that instance. The other thing to remember is that, and this is not well understood even sometimes by attorneys, is that officers have deadly force authority under the Constitution to shoot somebody in the back to prevent escape where they've committed a violent felony involving the infliction or threatened infliction of serious bodily harm or death when when Mr. Brooks takes the taser from the officer um, arguably that's a robbery right? Mm-hmm. he's taken that taser by force from the officer that's a robbery and a robbery is a violent felony involving the infliction or threatened infliction of serious bodily harm or death and as such, the officer could be justified in using deadly force to prevent his escape as he's running away. So I think you're going to see a lot in that case change. Um, uh, quite frankly, I think even a, a, a civil case in that one, uh, particularly in the 11th Circuit, which is a very conservative circuit, uh, you may see them uh, even on the civil side fine for the officer in that case. But doesn't it, all your logic that you just explained, I agree pretty much 100%. Are you alarmed that that logic was thrown out the window and they were charged him with homicide? I, that to, to me, I find that chilling. Yeah. So, so you know, you know, I've been involved in a lot of cases where politics uh, come into play. Um, I was the consulting expert for all six officers in the Freddie Gray case. I testified for Caesar Goodson, the driver of the paddy wagon. Um, there are cases where you see uh, a political bent to it. Remember that that prosecutor uh, down in Georgia who, who actually brought those charges, there's a lot going on with that prosecutor uh, with respect to a nonprofit that he forms. He's being investigated by the Georgia Bureau of Investigations. Um, and GBI uh, immediately came out when he said that he was charging the officer. They immediately came out and said that they had not finished their investigation yet. You know, how do you how do you do? Uh, bring criminal charges if the investigation is not done by the very entity mm-hmm. uh, that's supposed to do the investigation. And and you've nicely tied these issues with the protests and how they're organized. If I was an officer in, in a case like this, the, the taser one stands out to me. And are you going to get a fair trial when the jury and the judge and everyone involved knows that there's probably going to be a riot if uh, if the police are, let, uh, are, are uh, you know exonerated? Well, I can I can tell you that that was um, you know one of the strategy issues uh, that was discussed in in the Freddie Gray case, uh, and that's why 
um, after the first trial ended on a hung jury that uh, everybody else opted for a bench trial before the judge uh, because they felt that the judge would not be uh, as emotionally charged as a jury might be and may not be impacted uh, by that. So I think, you know, anytime an officer gets criminally charged, they have to consider um, the, the a bench trial as opposed to a trial before a jury who may be impacted by, A, uh, the potential that the city may burn down based on the, the outcome of the trial, or, or B, and the alternative, they may be, you know, caught up uh, in some of the what's going on in the in the public domain and they may be fearful for themselves mm-hmm. uh, with respect to how they'll be treated if their name gets out and they sat on that jury mm-hmm. you know so there there are all of those issues that that play into these cases uh, when we look at them I just learned something new one of our circuit court of appeals the 11th is conservative is there is there another conservative appeals court out of the um i guess i guess that we have 11 in the country right uh, uh actually yeah. with the dc circuit we have 12 but oh. but um you know the the uh, fifth circuit which is texas uh, louisiana is very conservative uh you know they, these these courts shift back and forth over the years depending on on appointments and ideolo- ideological um, uh, beliefs on on this can you take something from, uh, let's say, the uh, Second Circuit and move it down to uh, the the Eleventh, or does it have to stay uh, geographically uh, within its boundaries? No, it stays within its circuit. And then, if you don't agree with the circuit's opinion, you can certainly appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court only takes about fifty uh, some odd cases a year. This year, they only had one law enforcement case of all the constitutional issues, but there was only one real law enforcement case uh, this year. In uh, Winsocket, we have a yin and yang about public safety. Um, as you probably know, we have 101 police officers. Uh, for a while there, we uh, understaffed, but um, there's a feeling, I have a feeling uh, that we probably need more police officers. So there's always been a study that we have enough firemen, which I know you're not going to comment on, enough police officers. Um, and we talked about there's no formula. But if you were involved in that, what kind of feedback could you give in terms of what constitutes the right number of people for a given city and demographics and anything else that, that is involved? Well, I think that's, that's what you have to look at, and you have to look at what kind of services you're trying to provide. Um, you know, if you're talking about a, a city that's uh, very affluent um, and, and has virtually no crime, then obviously you can have less numbers uh, than a city that does have areas where there, there is crime. Um, there's no cookie-cutter approach, right? Um, and, and again, just use this example. Um, when I was in, in Providence uh, and, you know, at a, at a bad year, we might have had 26 murders, you know, and, and 26 was an awful lot. Um, we had most years somewhere around, you know, 12 or 13, average of, of maybe one a month. And, you know, when we would have those big years and, and, you know, the media would want to know what the heck's going on, you know, I could point to Gary, Indiana, mm-hmm. uh, that was similar demographics uh, to Providence, yet, you know, sometimes their numbers were well over 150 murders. So, so when you, there's no cookie-cutter approach. You've got to actually look at the workflow uh, when you do these kind of studies to see. But certainly, uh, you know, a, a city the size of um, uh, of Woonsocket and with the with the various demographics that uh, Woonsocket has, I don't think 101 police officers is probably not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that certainly would be my my opinion. Without and just knowing what I know, I'm I'm lucky that I know about most of the departments in Rhode Island and, and most of the demographics in Rhode Island. So. In traveling the country, I would say that's probably not enough officers. So it, it strikes you the same way it strikes me that 101, 41,000 with uh, demographics is probably not the right number. Not with the kind of demographics that, that Woonsocket has, no. We've gone over. Are we taking another commercial? Or? Yes, we do. Just okay. a couple of breaks here, and we'll be right back yeah. for a few more questions. Kay Kosher, your accounting, financial planning, tax preparation, and business consulting services of Woonsocket and Warwick. 600 Cass Avenue, Woonsocket, Jefferson Boulevard, and Warwick. Call us locally at 766-8100. Remember, outside of the tax season, we do planning for business, individuals, and families. We're Kay Kosher. We're certified public accountants. Again, our local number, 766-8100. And remember, having Kay Kasha to consult with on your personal financial situation is like having all the right answers. 
Have you been seeing those TV ads about the car thief who steals a car and crashes into the owner's motorcycle? And the one about the actor where the actor sits in front of the traffic to suggest you might need auto insurance from Allstate? Well, I'm here to tell you that the Benjamin Allstate Insurance Agency is where you can go to get Allstate insurance, just as I did. Not only do I have my cars insured by this agency with free motor club access, I also have several properties, including my home, insured by them as well. Kara and her mother, Celeste, operate this family-owned agency that's right across the street from the Dowling Village CVS Pharmacy. Park right at the door. And their friendly staff can serve your needs for all kinds of insurance. And you may want to talk to Kara's mother, Celeste, on how you can put extra income to work with investment products. They're open every day, Monday through Friday, at 8.30 a.m. And you can call them at 765-5000 if that's more convenient. That number again? 765-5000. So if you've been looking for an all-state insurance agency, the newly renovated Benjamin Insurance Agency is ready to serve you. Stop in or call them today. You're in good hands with Allstate. Inside dining, outside dining, or your favorite pickup order to go from Grumpy's Restaurant, Bellingham. Open seven days a week with a great luncheon menu and a full menu from burgers to steaks to seafood to our Italian dishes and our tasty pizzas. One of the best menus in the area. Hungry tonight or today? Come on in today and enjoy the friendly service, reasonable prices, and great food at Grumpy's. Call ahead for pickup order or place a reservation to dine in at 508-883-0101. Grumpy's, 190 Pulaski Boulevard, Bellingham, Massachusetts. Grubhub delivery also available. Hey, there are some nice dishes that uh, you can find at Grumpy's. And uh, remember, too, on Fridays, uh, we are open for lunch. Saturday's open for lunch. But every other day, like today, we'll be open at 3 o'clock this afternoon. And remember, I, we have those $10 dinner specials. They're very popular. They're the chef's choice. They change every day. You walk in, there are seven or eight from which to choose. $10 is all you pay. It's real economy dining. At Grumpy's today after 3. You're listening to WNRI's Upfront, a radio internet talk show. Now, let's get back to the panel. All right, we're back to the panel. I'm Roger, and uh, Chris is uh, with us today, Chris Boulay. And he's got an interesting guest. If you would kindly reintroduce him for late tuners in, and we'll get to a few more questions. Absolutely. If you just tuning in, we're speaking to attorney John Jack Ryan who is the co-director of Legal and Liability Risk Management Institute, which works very closely with police officers, and he's an expert witness on police force. And that leads me to one of my last questions is 900 cases. That's a lot, and um, I'm sure everyone's a little bit different. But are there any that really stand out to you to be interesting or just didn't go the way you thought they were going to go? You know, I, I, I've had some interesting uh, cases. I had one, and it's it's interesting because it involved uh, Benjamin Crump, who's you know tied up into this George Floyd case. And uh, Benjamin Crump was on this this case down in Arkansas, where a SWAT team uh, shot and killed a 107 year old man. Um, and and I got to tell you, it was a tragic case. This was a nice old man, um, but he was upset because his family was trying to move him into a nursing home. He went out and bought a gun. Uh, and then he started shooting at people, uh, including the police. And, and unfortunately, uh, he was shooting at the police when they had to return fire. They thought he was reloading the gun. But what was interesting about that case was that, you know, we filed something called a motion for summary judgment to have the case dismissed. And in my mind, it was a case that there were a no- number of issues of fact uh, where no judge would ever dismiss it. Uh, but Benjamin Crump uh failed to respond to our motion for summary judgment so it got dismissed by default wow you know so so that you know that was a surprising case and then i you know i had a case on the other side where officers used a tremendous degree of force on an autistic uh young man up in oregon that i thought was a terrible uh use of force case um and i thought that uh, you know our presentation to the jury was was pretty clear that it was a, a really bad use of force and the jury came back on behalf of the officers who had actually gone into a locked room and, and used significant, significant force on somebody who was already in, in a lockdown facility. So, you know, they do surprise me now and then. Um, you know, sometimes a, a jury will come back in a, in a bad case against officers, for the officers, uh, and sometimes vice versa. I've had other cases where I thought the officer did a great job, and yet the jury comes back and, and, uh, and finds the officer at fault. 
This is one of these hours up front that I wish we had another hour. So much interesting issues. And this is what the public really wants to know. It's very timely about the cases. But your organization does so much more as we wrap up in the next few minutes. Could you talk about the um, Legal and Liability Risk Management Institute? It goes well beyond what we're talking about. Yeah, so, you know, um, this is a, just a, a great organization that I was lucky enough to get tied up into um, back uh, in 2001, even before I left the uh, police department, and um, it was uh, I was fortunate. I met the former deputy chief of Los Angeles, a guy named Lou Ryder, who brought me into the agency, and um, it, it does a tremendous degree of training, and not not recruit level training, but really subject uh, matter expert training uh, around the country. Things like homicide investigation, things like use of force. You know, uh, SWAT, I do an awful lot of uh, SWAT management training. So, again, you know, we get involved in lots of training. We also get involved in writing policies uh, for usually statewide model policies, but only focused on the high-risk areas like use of force, pursuit, things of that nature, things that cause all the risk and liability for law enforcement. In addition to that, we get called in many times to troubleshoot an agency, um, I'd like to say that it's uh, when the agency has no problems and somebody's just trying to get ahead of um, and make sure that the, everything's being done right. But most of the time, uh, they come on the backside of a problem um, where we'll get called into an agency to look at issues, sometimes even investigate issues, um, and and kind of uh, make recommendations as how an agency can do things better in the future. And then obviously, uh, you know, a number of us get involved in these cases. Sometimes simply as consulting uh, or consultants, sometimes as testimonial experts. And uh, and so we get involved in lots and lots of cases. I will tell you that that biography is getting old because it's about 1,200 cases now, <laughs> not 900. So I don't know where the time's gone. But well, we, we, we hope you done. enjoyed yourself. And would you come up again? Very interesting. Absolutely. Name thank the time and I'll, I'll certainly make an effort to be thank here. Thank you very much, Jack. Thank All you, right, Jack, thanks. for joining us. And thank you, Chris, for arranging this uh, interesting interview. Tomorrow... Garrett Manseri joins us on the program. We'll have some open line conversation. So uh, please uh, stay right along with us, and we'll see you back here Thursday, Chris. Have a good day from the Upfront program. This has been WNRI's Upfront, presented weekday mornings at 8 a.m. Upfront is a regular public affairs presentation of News Talk 1380, WNRI Woonsocket.